Hello and welcome to another episode of Resilient Entrepreneurs. Today's conversation is about buying and selling businesses. We're talking with Josh Levine. Forecasters are saying that economic conditions are converging to make 2024 the best year yet to buy a small business. Professionals are looking for flexibility and ownership. Business owners are retiring in growing numbers. Josh is CEO and co-founder of Private Market Labs. It's a platform that promises to remove the barriers when it comes to accessing deal flow, capital, and expertise. It's all using AI and technology. We're about to learn more, and we're curious how and why this business came about. This is Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast where we speak with business owners and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and from around the world in the hopes that something you hear today will leave your business a little richer. Our business, Two for One Branding, supports new entrepreneurs as they launch their business and we offer you the tools you need to succeed. It's why we invite these experienced, successful entrepreneurs like Josh to share their wisdom with you on this podcast. If you love hearing their stories, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening or watching on right now and you'll be notified of the next great episode. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is great. Josh, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have this conversation today, of course. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your childhood was like? So we let, understand a little bit about who you are today. Yeah, of course. So uh, grew up in Dallas, um, Texas, uh, born, Texan born and raised and um, sort of took kind of a roundabout way of getting back here. I'm currently in Austin but spent my college years in Nashville and then Austin for grad school in public policy and then um, was working in finance for a little while in New York. And then I've recently moved back to Austin. So in terms of my professional development and what inspired me to be an entrepreneur, what kind of philosophy I bring to entrepreneurship, it really has that public policy lens. So for me, I've always been interested in problems of access, problems that have big impacts on larger numbers of people and how can we use technology in a way to make systems work better to help people access those systems more effectively and you know that's kind of born from my public policy education and then also through my time as an entrepreneur trying to find projects that allow us to say hey what is the latest technology let us do and how do we use that in the most effective way possible so um for private market labs for example one thing that we think a lot about is we have a number of different factors. We have the kind of macroeconomic factors of uh, a large number of retiring small business owners, and that number is accelerating. So we have you know over 50% of small business owners right now, uh, at least in the United States, are over the age of 55. And um, only about 20% of small business owners will transfer that business to the next generation within the family. And so what that means is you end up with a, a really large number of businesses that are either going to have to sell or close within the next 15 years. As this baby boomer generation gets older, you know, they decide to retire. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the ecosystem that we have existing right now, which has really been around you know, private equity groups and well-educated individuals at business schools acquiring these businesses. And what we see here is a lot of sellers about you know, 40,000 or so deals happening per year, and at least certainly uh, funded by the Small Business Administration here in the United States. And what we end up seeing is a, a mismatch, right? So 
people don't necessarily know about this opportunity to buy a business and business owners don't necessarily know that they can sell their businesses. And you know, we believe that this ecosystem should be bigger. This ecosystem should be easier to access and how, and we look to use the latest technology like large language models, like AI to make that process more effective. This is a conversation I want to have. I am passionate about this subject. I've recently done some diving into understanding about exactly this, like, because yeah, we do understand that absolutely. Like there's a huge generation of small business owners that let's face it, are your plumbers, your electricians. These are, these are people that most 20 year olds aren't probably striving to be necessarily as a plumber, but you could buy a plumbing business that already exists, that already has clients, that already has a brand, that already is successful, but it's just going to finish because the owner wants to retire. He's just kind of done. I think this happens over and over again, and people are just completely unaware of it. So I love that you're bringing this to people's attention. How does one even find out about a business that is for sale? Is there marketplaces for this? Tell us more about that. Yeah, so um, there's a number of places where people can go to find a business for sale, including private market labs. So one of the core components of what we've built is a marketplace. Basically, businesses for sale are found in a couple of different ways. The primary way is through a sell site intermediary called the business broker. So business brokers sort of function as a hybrid between an investment banker and a real estate agent, You know, depending on the size of the transaction. But really, they're coming in. They're advising the seller on, you know, what do you need to do to get this business ready to sell? How do we guide you through that process? Obviously for larger businesses or businesses with a little bit more complexity, the broker is acting in more of an advisory role. They're doing a little bit more work for some very small businesses. A broker might be primarily selling assets and real estate, but we usually focus on businesses that have, you know, 350,000 to about 2.5 million in, uh, you know, EBITDA or, or SE, which is seller's discretionary earnings. And where that puts us is really much more in this consultative broker role. So the brokers are working with the sellers directly and then fielding inquiries from buyers from across the ecosystem of, you know, relationships and marketplaces and things like that. So that tends to be the, the most common entry point. Yeah. I think most entrepreneurs will spend a lot of time building a business, but we often don't think about the exit, right? Like when to exit, how to exit, and some will just close up, close up the doors. I mean, we saw that happen so often during COVID. I mean, I think that was super heartbreaking. There were some longstanding successful businesses, at least from the outside. We never know exactly what happens, <laughs> but there was a lot of longstanding businesses that just closed their doors because they just, I think it was more the retirement than it was the you know, the fact that it was COVID and they couldn't, you know what I mean? I'd love to change this. And I think I would love younger people to understand that this is an entryway into entrepreneurship as well. You don't have to necessarily build your own business. You can buy an existing business. So let's talk a little bit about that value for someone young, maybe inexperienced. Like, do you have to know how to do plumbing to buy a plumbing business, for example? How does one figure that side of the business out? Yeah. So there are some industries, right, where there are some licensing requirements or businesses where, so for example, plumbing or electrical contracting or, you know, businesses like that, that have skill sets and licensing requirements. Typically, it's really, really helpful if you have experience in those industries to purchase that business. And if you don't, 
trying to find a business and figure out how do you either keep the owner on long enough to learn how to do it, you know, bringing in and working with existing staff members, elevating them, training them, saying, hey, we're going to take some work off your plates. So you can focus on this work. And that's actually become much easier in recent years, uh, just this year, in fact, because the Small Business Administration allows for existing employees to allows for partial buyouts, which means that the owner can can take some chips off the table and stay on in the business. Or there are ways to bring in key employees into the, you know, who own equity into the transaction without typically you would have to take on hundred percent of the transaction to buy it out with an SBA loan. Now you don't have to do that. So that opens the door for people who are non-plumbers or non-electricians to buy companies that they're interested in. So I think that's a key piece of it. We often recommend that people buy businesses that exist in an area of interest for them. So for example, if you have a background in digital marketing, maybe you go buy a marketing agency. If you have a background in finance and accounting, you could go buy an accounting firm, right? So there are sort of small business equivalents to a lot of people's corporate jobs and, and interests that you can, you can align. And, and even if there's not a clear one, figuring out what you're passionate about and, and where you have some level of interest and expertise can really go a long way. So Josh, let's say some of our listeners are in the age bracket of, I don't know, 25 to 45. And they're really interested in this concept of buying a business. Yeah. What's your best piece of advice for them? First thing to do. Yeah. So I think the first thing to do there's a knowledge piece about getting started. So figuring out, okay, what are the different beats of the transaction? There's typically, you decide how you want to search. Are you going to raise money from investors and be a minority partner and a CEO? Are you going to use debt and take over the business all on your own? There are positives and negatives to both. And so engaging in materials like the Stanford search study, like you know, buy then build, or the messy marketplace, which are foundational books in the space, listening to podcasts, I would spend some time just engaging with that literature, engaging with the community online, you know, through Twitter and search funder are two great places where people can engage online and learn more about this process and really get a sense of, Hey, is, is searching for me, you know, it can be a grueling, you know, year long plus process to find a business due diligence on that business. It can be financially costly. If you're really passionate about this figure out the way you want to search and, and sort of build your support system around that. So that's kind of step one. Step two is to try to start identifying deal flow quickly and trying to see a lot of deals. So we see people that you know, say, okay, I'm going to find the absolute perfect business and it's going to be awesome. And really what you want to find is a very good business that you can close on quickly. If you're, if you're serious about doing it, finding a very good business, even if it's not okay, I wanted something with a million of EBITDA and this one has 900K of EBITDA. I'm not going to close on it because it's too small. Like there's a lot of moving parts and there's an opportunity cost to not pulling the trigger on something that you're, that's a very good fit instead of a, a perfect fit. Oftentimes that perfect business might not exist, but you can build a very good business into the perfect business over time. I'm really relating this to buying property, you know, buying a house. You have your ideal house in mind. You're thinking that, you know, you want certain parameters and there's always going to be some kind of a trade-off, right? And then once you do buy it, perhaps even as an investment, perhaps there's some other work you can do inside it once, once you own it. Yeah. And I think that there are certainly some clear parallels to, you know, the real estate industry, but there are a lot of differences as well, right? So from a business, 
there's oftentimes from the outside, a lot less transparency. You go on to an online, you know, whether it's an MLS or an online platform like Zillow or something, you can see photos of the house. You can, you know, see all the details you need. Your like due diligence process is really, let's do a walkthrough. Let's get an inspector in. let's make sure everything is up to code. That process can be, is relatively quickly, relatively quick for a small business. There's so many more moving parts. There are employees, there are customers, and there's also confidentiality concerns. So most small businesses are not just going to say, Hey, come, come by me. I'm for sale, right? You're going to spook your customers. If you have longstanding employees, you might spook your employees. So most businesses will, and, and especially businesses represented by brokers will go through this process at least confidentially. So you're not going to say, Hey, you know, Josh's electrical contracting company in Austin is for sale. It'll say, you know, profitable electrical contracting company is for sale and then give maybe 25% of the initial information to help tease people and get people interested. Then there's a much more, you know, there's financial due diligence, there's legal elements of it. So it's a more involved process, which makes it more difficult than buying a house. But, you know, to your point, there, there are some elements that are similar. But due to the confidentiality part sure. of it, how much is happening already that we just don't know about? Is this happening all the time? Is there a lot of movement in this in this industry? So it's been really interesting to see. So we've seen unprecedented interest in the sort of search space, like the people who are looking to buy businesses, right? But conferences are you know growing exponentially, both in terms of the number of conferences that I'm I'm going to on a regular basis, as well as the number of people at each of these conferences. The online communities are growing exponentially. I would say that recent data from the Small Business Administration shows that the number of loans and the loan, the number of loans closed and the loan volume is relatively stable from 2019 to now. But if you think about that relative to funding and venture capital down 38% over the last year, right? We've seen incredible stability in a moment of economic uncertainty, right? There's a lot of people who are risk off treasuries or providing a very strong return to like, Hey, you know, I don't need to take a risk on my investments. I can just sit back and put my money in a, you know, be, I'll be risk on when the rates get cut. Right. So there's an element of that, but we're not really seeing a decline in activity in this space, which has been really, really interesting. And part of that is because the decision to buy a business is not necessarily only a financial decision. It is a decision about your personal future your independence, your freedom, your ability to operate and grow something of significance and embed yourself within a community. And I think that most people who are looking to buy a business, particularly as individuals, are looking to solve some less tangible thing. They're searching for a sense of purpose. They're searching for a sense of independence. I mean, it's one of the things that got me into entrepreneurship as well, right? I you know, was working in corporate and I, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to find something that put more pressure on me, that made me feel more engaged with my day-to-day my -day work. And so I, I think that there's a lot of people trying to solve this with entrepreneurship through acquisition. How did you get into this field though? Like this yeah. is so interesting. <laughs> It is, it, it's a little bit of an interesting story how I got into this field. So I'll, I'll back up. So I was working as a credit analyst at Lord Abbott. My specialty was government backed security. So my background's in public policy. In finance, I was focused on, you know, fixed income, government oriented securities. So I did anything from student housing to roads to water, sewer, state, local government, pensions, you name it. And I found that process very engaging. And my, my specialty was higher education. So I was like, look, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start a higher education startup. 
So I left finance, started building this education startup, you know, pivoted it a couple of times, went through some, some fits and starts, you know, as a lot of early entrepreneurs do. And I, I'm the first to admit that I didn't know anything. When I started, I, I read the lean startup and I'm like, great, I'm good to go. I know everything about entrepreneurship that there is. And uh, that was wrong. And I have a lot more gray hairs to show for it as a result. But, uh, as I was sort of pivoting and learning about entrepreneurship, uh, a friend of mine approached me with an opportunity. Some of his former business school classmates were looking to build a marketplace for venture-backed startups that you know were doing okay, but didn't quite hit their you know growth trajectory. And so they were going to bring me in. They were still operating with some startups that were going to be early customers of this model, and they wanted me to sort of do some research, see if it was viable, and then you know operate the company with them. And so as I was doing that research, I really came to the conclusion that businesses get bought and sold for three reasons. The first is that the business has, you know, strong like financial performance or, or cash flow profit that is going to be acquired that provides a financial return for the buyer. Second, the company has a, you know, valuable good or service that is being acquired so that can be sold by the acquiring company. Or third, the company has a, a team that is worth acquiring, like an aqua hire. And absent those two things, right? If you don't have a differentiated product and you don't have any profit, you're probably not going to get acquired. And that's that's just generally how it goes. So a lot of VC backed companies, actually the, the people I was working with had fantastic companies that ended up doing very well. But a lot of VC backed companies that don't hit their numbers, don't hit their numbers. And the problem is they don't have product market fit. They've built so they built the wrong thing for the market and they're not going to be acquired. But as I was doing this research, I discovered this other piece, which is there are a lot of highly profitable small businesses doing things that are quote unquote boring, that are maybe less in the public eye than tech, which is kind of flashy. And those companies have a lot of value as a financial investment and as a you know good or service acquisition for an individual buyer. And there was very little technology. And that industry was much was, was underserved relative to some other elements of, of finance and M&A. So that, that's kind of how I got into the space. Yeah. So you're a problem solver. I, I love it. That's such a one sentence description. It's fantastic. It doesn't do it justice, but you, that's ultimately what it boils down to, isn't it? And I guess that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We see problems and we want to close the gap. And I really enjoyed how you described the reasons you wanted to step out onto your own gig and be an entrepreneur. Tell us what you love most about that, about being an entrepreneur. So um, I steal this line all the time. A family member of mine, he said this to me and it just clicked perfectly. He says, I want to work at a job, at a profession that lets me use my brain the way I like to use it. And that's just like the framework that he uses to see everything in his life. It's like, am I getting to do the type of thinking that I like? And for me, solving entrepreneurship style problems with big potential outcomes and a lot of complexity and a lot of uncertainty, those are the kinds of things I like to do and I, I like to think about. And I think that for me, my sort of winding road to this was really just me sort of making micro adjustments to try to figure out how do I align the stuff that I like to think about with the stuff that I'm doing on a daily basis. And that led me to entrepreneurship. Hmm. Now you've put a lot of tech and AI into this new platform that you've built. Tell us about that. And why is that important to you? Yeah, so basically we started using AI because it was the best way for us to solve our problem. When you think about 
big problems with multivariate data problems, right? So problems that are almost, that almost have so many variables and so many pieces that it is very, very difficult for a human to do, and especially for a human to do at scale. And that is one of the things that AI is very, very good at. So AI can parse a lot of data, identify patterns within that data and generate results in a way that it might take one person, you know, six months to do an AI can do in a couple of days. And it's truly amazing the capacity that the things that large language models can do, especially if you're building around this type of question. So we see a lot of like GPT has gotten a lot of press and, you know, being able to talk to a chatbot, get it to edit your essay or ask simple search questions. There are two categories of AI solutions, right? There's stuff that's kind of cute in quotes. It's, it's cute. And there's stuff that is like deeply meaningful. And I think that to some extent, some of the chatbot stuff is fun and cute, but doesn't like do a lot, at least yet. I'm bullish on it. I think that it has the capacity to continue to get smarter and do more and more things. But for us, we felt like the best application of this technology was how do we organize and analyze all this data that is currently in a very messy, very challenging to access format. And then can we do these multi-vector search type of questions, which is you have location data and description data and financial data and all these things that people want out of a business acquisition, we can do multi-vector search is sort of what we call it, like multi-vector search between these things on my acquisition criteria side, and then all of those qualities of all of the businesses for sale on the market. And that's a, a problem and a data problem that AI can facilitate. And so for us, AI is a means to an end. And I think that the companies that are using AI to solve a clear problem or solve a real problem are going to be the ones that are, are really successful. I think that saying, Hey, what if we just take X and add AI? It's like, well, right. Well, what is the AI going to do is the next level question. And for us, it's, well, we have all these complex data operations that we're doing. We need the AI to help us with that because before AI came along and before it got more advanced, it was much, much more difficult to do that than it is now. Yeah. I think that's a great message. I also think that's where a lot of business owners get really confused because kind of get what AI can do, but how do I get it to do what you've just said for me? Like very specifically, like, so for those who don't know, and, and I'm definitely in that category, how does one create their very own AI that works just for you, for your business? I mean, so to be clear, we haven't created like our own model, right? So you have large language models are trained on, there's a whole industry of how do we train artificial intelligence to do certain tasks or to be proficient in certain tasks. And OpenAI is now allowing people to plug GPT into other in specific data sets and query just that data set, which is really, really cool. So we, we're not building our own large language model. Really what we're doing is we've gotten very good at figuring out what instructions to give a large language model in order to get it to look at the data in the way that we want. By being subject matter experts, we understand, hey, what does a deal look like? What are people looking for? In what format? How are the questions phrased? And so in sort of understanding that piece, we're able to provide the right instructions to the AI models and say, hey, we've got this type of a problem and here's our data and here are all the different pieces, like help us structure the data in a way that facilitates those kinds of answers and then help us answer those questions. So it's less about saying like, oh, I'm going to go out and create a brand new AI. It's really about how do we, in a very deep way, 
integrate AI into the core of like an operations uh, structure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Josh, a lot of sense. And now as it relates to your platform, that's a membership base. So talking now from a customer client perspective, they would engage with you by way of a membership. Yes. So the way that it works is uh, people can sign up and they pay you around 50 bucks a month. And that allows them to basically sort through the entire ecosystem of on-market deals. So we're focused on deals represented by business brokers. We have right now 73,000 deals for sale on the platform across more than 30,000 different individual brokers. And what we do with that data is buyers will come in and say, Hey, I'm Josh. I'm looking for a teaser analogy from before you. I'm looking for a plumbing company in Austin. I'm looking for a plumbing company that's in Austin and has between $250,000 of seller's discretionary earnings and $750,000 of seller's discretionary earnings. You know, can you show me those kinds of deals? And then you put that query into the model and then we show you matches that fit that model. And so we have a number of other, it's, there's other components of it, right? We, we show some comps, we allow you to say, oh, I want to do a strict search or I want it to be kind of more variable so I can see more things, even if they're not perfect fits. We allow people to be very experimental and flexible with it, but that's what you get. And then as you move forward, we can connect you with other pieces of the process. So we're, you know, for example, we, we partner with a firm called Dudilio and you can connect to Dudilio through the platform if you have due diligence needs. So let's say you find a deal that you like. Next step is, okay, we're going to conduct some diligence, the, some quality of earnings analysis or you know, some accounting analysis, those kinds of things. You can hire that person through our partner. And then as you move forward, it's, okay, now I need a loan. I'm going to go buy this business. We can also connect you to a lender. So really we are trying to open this industry up to say, okay, let's help you find a business. Let's help you figure out if this business is actually good, a good purchase. And then let's help you purchase this business. And so that's sort of the end to end process that we're working on. Just makes it so accessible. I think that's, that's the idea. Yeah. And at such a low entry point, $50 a month, when you're talking yeah. about buying a million dollar business, it, exactly. it's remarkable. I think it's a pretty good deal, but you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased, so. <laughs> yeah. The membership model, is that a key part of your business model? Because this membership is not a traditional business model. I guess in my opinion, it's not. It's relatively new in the last five years or so as a mainstream I mean, so model. I would say more closely to a, a subscription than like a membership, to like a community mm. or something like that. So you're sort of paying, it's, it's more, you know, subscription based sort of traditional kind of SaaS payment model for a buyer. And then we price in a way to get people in the door. And then really we're making most of our margin and most of our revenue as we help people through the process. And so, you know, really the, the $50 a month is, is there because we want to help the sell side identify which buyers are serious, which buyers are actually looking to buy right now. And that, that even a small financial barrier can be a good signal to, you know, a broker say, Hey, this person is really ready to go. They're not just kicking the tires on the industry. And so when we communicate with our broker partners, we say, Hey, everyone coming from us, those are good buyers and you should pay attention to them. Yeah. Cause just like in real estate, there's people that will come and just want to poke at the open house and, you know, like check out the property. My wife gets so exasperated because we'll be walking through the neighbors like, Hey, it's an open house. It's popping. She's like, why? We're not buying a house because like, it's interesting. Why not? 
You and me both, Josh. It's a fabulous <laughs> hobby, especially the open homes, the new ones, the show homes. Oh, I'll spend a whole weekend doing that. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> You're just there to grab some ideas, right? You're just like, oh, maybe I should do that renovation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that happens with this too, when people might just be curious about who is selling and why they're selling. And they may have no interest in buying. And you do want to weed out people that are wasting time on both sides. So that is really important. And I see why the subscription model really works. My curiosity is how long is the process generally from, okay, I come to you, I'm interested in buying, I'm a good viable buyer, and I want to find a business that fits me. How long is that process from first sort of introduction to like closing on a business? At the minimum, it's usually several months at, at least, right? So you'll have, usually it's a, a few months to do the diligence process and then negotiate the final purchase order. So let's say, you know, if you find a business in one month that you like, it might still take you five months to close on a business. It's a little bit of a, of a process. You know, we've seen people who are, you know, really focused on finding this exact specific thing. They could take a year and a half, two years. Our goal is to make that much, that, that take a lot less time. Right. But um, certainly there's time that's needed for diligence. There's time that's needed for the buyer and seller to get to know each other. One of the important pieces and one of the things that makes this a little, again, a little bit different than real estate is if you're living in a home, your home is not your life's work. Your home is sort of the place where you are. And if you're selling your home, you're most likely going to go be in another place. And that new place is going to be home. If you've spent 30 years building a business, that business is in your blood. That business is the thing that you do. That business is you know, the way you like to use your brain every day, day in and day out. And so for the seller, it's a very emotional process. And we've seen situations all the time where sellers will pick a buyer that has a slightly lower offer, but is someone that they really connected with on, a, on an interpersonal level, someone that they feel like they can trust to do right by their community and their employees. So. We talk a lot about in game theory, right? We talk about what are like multiple interactions where people engage multiple times. So like the way you beat a prisoner's dilemma, for example, is you say, you know, hey, your incentive to cheat goes down because I'm going to have to work with you again and again and again and again, right? And for for this kind of an engagement, right, the other way you, be, you beat it is if there's like deep, deep trust. And so even if it's not like the ideal, like, oh, I'm trying to maximize my financial outcome, then you just pick the highest bidder. But in a one-shot game where there's deep, deep trust, people might value other things above just the financial outcome. And so you're trying to get to that point if you're a, if you're a buyer. Or you might lose out to private equity and you have to start over. And that, that's also fine. But. Yeah, I really enjoy the analogies and bringing the game theory to this conversation. I guess that a lot of that is the base of how you play this game. Is that right? I think game theory is fascinating. And it's one of the filters, you know, you talk about like the public policy filter, and then there's kind of like the game theory filter is another way to sort of see the world a little bit. For example, in the product, we show people listings 10 at a time. So we could, for example, say, hey, here's all 200 deals that match your criteria right off the bat. And what that does is it encourages people to you know, scroll through to the bottom and they'll say, well, you know, I wasn't that excited about any of these. <laughs> and in reality, if you give people 10 at a time, you say, hey, I'd like you to focus deeply on these 10. And then if you want more, you can have them, but just focus on 10 for now. And what that does is you're, you're now focused on the different similars and differences between things that you can kind of comprehend as, as people were really bad 
at making optimization decisions when we have like a lot of choices. Making choices is like one of the things, I mean, I'm terrible at making choices when it comes to like, I have to like, I wear black shirts every day. Like this is like the Mark Zuckerberg, like I'm going to wear the same shirt. Like everyone is like, there's decision fatigue. So people generally, we want to put people in a position where they feel empowered to make a fully rational and decisive choice. Because I think that buying a business is, is hard. Operating a business is hard. It's not for the faint of heart. And we want people to feel really, really confident that they've made the right choice. And in, we do that by helping them engage a little bit more by gaming the system slightly. That's really cool. I, I love that you do that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you brought up some really good points there about decision fatigue being one of them. And we've spoken about that in the past. You know, you're not the only one who likes a black t-shirt, right? I mean, it's just simplify, simplify what you can. Some entrepreneurs will eat the same exact thing for lunch every single day, just so they don't have to make that as an extra decision in their day. Because sometimes when you're making really huge, important decisions, like buying a business or selling a business, you know, you don't want to get overwhelmed at either end. So I like what you do and how that you make that a little bit easier for people. So what advice would you give someone who was interested in, in selling? Say someone that you, you loved, what would you tell them, right? What's that important message that they need to hear? So if someone is interested in selling, I would say that selling a business is not something you like wake up and do in one day, right? And sometimes it can, there can be conflicts in terms of, right, when you're operating a business, it is to your tax advantage to show as little profit as possible. But if you are selling a business, it is to your advantage on the other end to show as much profit as possible. You want to have your books in order. You want to have redundancy in your management structure. So oftentimes people who have the best outcomes are people who say, I think I'm going to need to sell. I think I'm going to need to sell within the next two years. How do I build my management team and my financials in a way that allow me to present my best foot forward? And then as I'm pursuing the sale, have that structure in place so that the performance doesn't dip while I'm negotiating the sale. Like selling a business is very distracting. And we see all the time that performance will dip while you're you're doing that negotiation process. And it'll result in people not getting, I think, what they what they had hoped for. So I would say try to get all your ducks in a row. And then if you're not so confident about the selling process, if you haven't taken part in an M&A transaction before, or you're not so familiar with the, the process or the terms, working with a trusted you know, sell-side advisor or business broker can really make a difference in terms of the broker is there to help bridge the information asymmetry between both parties, right? So there's information asymmetry on both sides. So the buyer doesn't know all the stuff about the business that the seller does. The seller is in it. The buyer doesn't understand it. The broker's job is to get the buyer information so the buyer can make a good decision. On the flip side, oftentimes if a buyer is a you know seasoned steel maker or they're coming from private equity or they have an MBA, they might be really comfortable with the negotiation and deal making process. Whereas the seller who has been you know a plumber for the last 30 years and is making a million dollars a year on their plumbing company may not feel so comfortable sitting in a suit and tie across the table from a you know a person half their age who's a you know technocrat, right? So the broker is there to help the seller bridge that relationship gap as well. So 
I would say that if you're not so familiar with this process and you're looking to sell, get everything in order, work with a business broker, get recommendations for business brokers. If you feel that there's something off about the broker you're working with, or you're getting pressured, or they want you to pay a lot of money up front, like there's, you know, there's definitely brokers that are not, that are more helpful than others. So I would say, you know, find a good business broker that can help you through that process. Perfect. And do you mainly work within U.S. clients? Are you fully U.S.-based? Are you national-based? Are you just within Texas? Tell us just a little bit about if someone wanted to work with you, how they could. Yeah, we are U.S.-based. So the vast majority of our deals are in the United States. We do see you know, some deals come through the platform just because that's what brokers are bringing to the, to the market. We do see some international deals, but most of our buyers and most of our brokers are focused in the U.S. Now, that doesn't mean that has to stay that way. And, you know, there are thriving ecosystems for M&A in other parts of the world as well. I think that in particular, the structure of the Small Business Administration 7A loan, which, you know, allows people in the United States to buy a business with a loan that is generally lower interest because it is backed by the full faith and credit of the government, you're in a position where it's a little bit easier to do it here than it is in, in some other places. Right. I mean, taking out one of these loans, it's not, I've mentioned the loan several times. It's not risk-free. So if you're a buyer, you're taking out one of these loans, you're putting up your personal assets as collateral. Right. So, I mean, everybody knows the story of at least one person who took out an SBA loan, the business went under, and then they had to forfeit a lot of their savings. I mean, it, it can be very risky, which is one of the reasons why I think the, there's less people buying businesses than there could be. But uh, if you have conviction and you're, you're serious about doing this and, you know, the alternative is maxing out all your credit cards to start a business with an unproven uh, market, you know, this can be a very, very good opportunity for, for a lot of people. Obviously your, your credit matters, but you'll be able to get a better loan uh, terms than a traditional commercial loan because the, the government is involved. Okay. That's good to know. It's really important. And I do like what you're saying about risk. There's risk inherent in entrepreneurship. And sure. if you are completely risk averse, then entrepreneurship is probably not for you. <laughs> like, And that's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's going to come in either form, whether you're creating something yourself or you're buying something established. I think a, a bank or another lending institution probably likes to see a, you buying an established business that already has some profit that you can prove. Might make it a little easier to get a loan and in some ways than a startup. So that is something else to consider when you're trying to figure out what your entrepreneurship journey is. So Josh, um, we have one final question for you because of course sure. we are called Resilient Entrepreneurs. So I'd love to ask you, how do you feel someone can become resilient as an entrepreneur? Resiliency is really important for, for starting something. And even people who have great sunny outlooks and positive people are probably struggling at moments. And, you know, I, I certainly struggle and, uh, the entrepreneurship journey is, is a roller coaster. You feel amazing at some points and then terrible at others. And so I think that one piece of advice that I've gotten that is really helpful is, you know, it's not you on the operating table. It's just your idea. And I think that that can be a very freeing philosophy, right? You can, take your own view of your self-worth out of the success or failure of the business, right? You are not your business. Your business is a thing you are doing. 
And by in doing so, that lets you make the hard decisions about that business. That makes lets you change the business. It lets you destroy the business if it's not working, or it lets you put it on life support and really push if it is working, right? And you want to save it. But I think that having a healthy mindset around, I'm going to divorce my personal sense of self-worth from this helps people make better decisions, whether you're going to pursue a new product line or you push really hard, raise money, close the business, whatever it is, that mindset can be very helpful either uh, regardless and can build resiliency. Yeah, that's solid advice. I absolutely am going to remember that. It's your idea on the operating table, not you. Yeah. And divorcing yourself from it and Understanding that it is a roller coaster. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's fantastic. Like you said, uh, we all go through the peaks and valleys. We all go through the uninformed optimism startup stage. Even when you're buying, whether you're buying or whether you're starting up, you're always going to be somewhat uninformed. And that's okay because I think that's where we leap off. We leap off and we take a risk and we go for it. And that's who changes the world. And that's who builds all the great businesses that employ everybody else. And we need that to keep all of this going. So Josh, I just want to thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, one I've been wanting to have for a long time, because I do think this is a very interesting side of entrepreneurship that is not talked about, not talked about enough. So thank you for bringing attention to it. And please, I'd love to talk to you again. So hopefully we'll see you again on Resilient Entrepreneurs in the future. Just thank you very, very much for your time. All the best. That's great. Thank you. This was really fun.